Let's hear God's word. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we now come to your word, as we consider this, the, the story of Christmas, we pray that, that you would make it live to us. Lord, for many of us, this is not the first time. This is not the, the hundredth time that we've heard this story. And so we pray that, that you would open our hearts, that, that you would open our eyes so that we might see it anew. So, so that we might bow before you, that we might worship this King, this Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Lord, we pray that you would be active in this time. That your spirit would be at work in our hearts, drawing us closer to you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. Good news and great joy. Well, I have, I have to be honest with you this morning that, that when I hear this passage, anytime I hear this passage, I struggle not to hear it in the voice of the Peanuts character, Linus. Um, I know that's not very theological, and that's probably not what you're supposed to say from the pulpit, but my mother has always had an affinity for Charlie Brown. I don't know why, but she loves Charlie Brown, especially Lucy. Uh, and so every year... You know, at that point, you didn't have DVDs and all of that. Every year that it came on TV, every time it came on TV, we would watch it. And so this that scene where, where Linus gets up and the, the lights dim and he's on the stage by himself and he tells Charlie Brown the true meaning of Christmas. He, he gives us these words. They, they are just kind of etched into my brain. I can quote most of this verbatim because of sweet little Linus and his blue blanket. But there's another reason why I think this has really stuck with me over the years. And it's because lots of times I find that, that I'm a lot like Charlie Brown. Renee, she always says that, that I'm a Scrooge. And, and that could be true. 
uh, it's not so much that I don't like Christmas. I really do love Christmas and I, and I love the, the, all the things that go along with it. But, but usually about this time of year, I don't know if it's just the, the commercial nature of it all, if it's this, the hectic nature of it all, or if it's just my own sinful heart. It's usually about right now, I am ready to hear the story. I'm ready to hear what Christmas is all about. Like, like Charlie Brown and all of his friends there, I'm ready to pause and I want to hear it. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to do that. Now, the temptation is as we approach these words is, is to try to spruce them up, right? We, we've heard them so many times. We've heard so many sermons on these words that the, the temptation is to try to make them new, to try to make them interesting so that we can get to it at a different angle. But we're not going to do that. You know, we don't try to spruce up Shakespeare. We don't try to spruce up Tolkien. We don't try to spruce up C.S. Lewis. We just take it as it is. And so why would we try to spruce up the greatest story that, that has ever been told? Why would we try to spruce up the very word of God to us? The answer is we shouldn't do that and we're not going to do that. But my prayer is, is as we've already said, is that as we approach this, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, that God would give us fresh ears, that he would give us fresh eyes. Not that we would see this in a different way, but that we would be reminded of the hope of Christmas, that we would be reminded of Emmanuel. God with us, what God did, how far Jesus stooped to be near his people. Well, I don't know that I've done a good job of it, uh, but over the last few weeks, I hope that, that you've been able to, to see that as we've considered chapter one, these 80 verses, I hope you felt kind of the, the tension, that the drama build as Luke has told us this story. You know, we said when we started all of this that, that it had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people. These Jewish people who had been so used to hearing from God through the prophets, through, through these holy men, they had been in relative silence for, for a very long time. And so as, as God begins to speak, as he gives not just any news, but the news of the Christ, the, the news of the Messiah, as these people sing these great songs, if we were just reading this for the first time, we should be asking, what's God about to do? How is he going to do this? If he has already made a barren lady pregnant, if he has already made a virgin with child, if he can mute a, a, a priest and then make him speak later on, if he can do all of that, how in the world will he bring Jesus into the world. Surely, surely he will hold nothing back when he brings the king to his people. Now, to some degree or another, that's true, right? We see the angels, we see all the miraculous nature of it. But you know, when you slow down and you really consider these words, what, what you find is a story that is full of paradoxes. It's a story that, that in so many ways, it just sends our expectations completely out the window, right? You know, on the one hand, it is marvelous as the angels declare this birth. 
But at the same time, we can't help but be struck by, by the normal circumstances that it all comes through. That the normal people that are involved and the normal processes that bring us a savior. And what I want to submit to you this morning as we study this is that it's somewhere there between the, the, the extraordinary and the ordinary that we find that good news, that we find great joy. Well, let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to see here is an extraordinary birth, an extraordinary birth. And you see it in verses one through seven. Now, Luke you know, he is a good historian. And so he begins his story with giving us some, some historical significance, giving us some, some things that we can kind of hang our hat on, some details, some information that show us where we are on the timeline of history. And so he gives us there in verses one through five. Let's, let's read that again together. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Now, we've all heard it said that there are only two guarantees in life. And what are those two guarantees? Death and taxes, right? Well, here, here you see that that could be true. Because as, as the Roman leader, Caesar Augustus, as he calls for this census, not only is he calling for everyone to be registered, but he does it so that everyone can be taxed, right? This is a registration in order that he might tax his people. Now, in some ways, it really is hard not to be impressed by the power that Caesar wields here by the fear that he must have over his people. Because when you think of just the vastness of the Roman Empire, when you think about the, the lack of technology that they had, the lack of transportation that they have, that, that when he sends out this decree, when he sends out this word, the whole empire moves. You know, we don't want to have to go to the courthouse to pay our taxes. You know, they send us the little cards in the mail. That way we don't have to go too far. These people are having to pack up their lives to go and do what Caesar has called them to do. So in some ways, we are impressed by his strength. We are impressed by his might. That is until we get to verse four. Because there we find that that caught up in all of this political maneuvering and all of this political strength are Joseph and Mary, right? On their way to Bethlehem, on their way to the city of David, the place of his heritage, the place where he was born. When we see that, we begin to realize it's not Caesar who is pulling the strings here, right? It's not Caesar who is in charge. No, it is the almighty God who is in charge. It is the God of Israel who is to be respected. It is the God of Israel who is to be feared. We've said all along through these songs that, that these great folks have sung, that, that God worked through history, that he worked through the actions of men and women. And here we see that he also works through the decrees and the actions of Caesar. He works through the means of of men that think they know what they're doing, that think they are in power. Really, it is the power of God 
Not only has God arranged it so that Jesus would be a rightful heir to his father, David, but he has also arranged it so that he might be born in the place that the prophet Micah had predicted. Right. You remember those words in Micah five, verse two. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from of ancient of days. You have to wonder if Joseph and Mary, when they heard this news, knowing their Bibles, knowing Scripture as good Jews would, if they wondered, how, how will God work this out? We, we live in Nazareth. We don't live in Bethlehem. How is He going to do this? And then the decree comes. The decree, the decree comes from Caesar. It says, hey, you've got to go back to Bethlehem. And Mary, in some ways, you have to see her rejoicing in her heart, knowing what the angel had said to her, knowing who this child was. And now God is working it all out, right? I love what David Gooding, he says here. He says, for Augustus, the taking of the census was one way to, that he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But, and here is the irony of the thing, in the process, as he thought of tightening his grip on a huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. Once again, what, what an encouragement, what a wonderful reminder this is to us. We live in a world of powerful people. They, they make their decisions. They make plans for our futures. We, we make plans for our futures, right? We say, well, we're going to do this in a year. We're going to do this. We have a five-year plan. You know, this is what we hope for our children, for our children's children from generation, right? And in the midst of it, war rages. Pandemics do whatever they do. Things all the time seem out of control. And yet behind it all is the hand of almighty God. He is at work in the big things. He's at work in the politics of this world. But he's also at work in the little things. Going to register to vote. Going to register to get your taxes, right? To have to pay your taxes. He is in the, in the midst of all of that. Because doesn't that give you hope in a world where we are constantly looking for meaning? We're constantly looking for purpose, right? We, we, we think if we could just get that promotion, if we could just get some more stuff, if we could just do this, we would finally realize what life is all about. Here, here we're reminded that as the Savior comes into the world, that God is not just redeeming the big things, but he's redeeming the mundane things. He's redeeming the daily grind that we go through every day, that he is a part of every bit of that. Friends, if that's true, then that means that, that everything is purposeful. Everything we do has meaning. If he's at work in our lives all the time, then going to work, being at home with our kids, dealing with our spouses, whatever it is, it all has value. It all has purpose. It all has meaning because he has redeemed it all. And so we have this, this God who is silently kind of behind the scenes. He's maneuvering things so that they would work out the way that he had planned all along. 
But, but as, as Mary and Joseph, as they make it to Bethlehem, uh, the, the time comes for, for Mary to give birth. Now again, it's striking to me that, that Luke ha- has spent 80 verses in chapter 1, and then 5 verses here in chapter 2, preparing us for, for the birth of this Savior. And then he gives us all of two verses actually describing it. And one of those verses is just saying that she's about to give birth. <laughs> Look at there in 6 and 7. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lighting, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We've just got through saying that, that God has maneuvered these things in amazing and miraculous ways. We've got through saying that that Luke has built us up to this point so that we expect it to be big, right? We expect it to be marvelous. But here, here in Bethlehem, at least in this moment, it's fairly normal, right? Maybe, Maybe even less than normal. After all, remember, Mary and Joseph, when they get to Bethlehem, they're unable to find a room in the inn, and so they just take what they can find. And now what that was that they actually found is a matter of great debate. We, we think of it as a stable, and maybe it was that. But mo- more likely, it was just a very lower room in one of the houses there in Bethlehem. But either way, it doesn't matter. The fact is, is that as Mary gives birth to her child, she, she takes him. She lies him in a manger. This, this feeding trough for animals. So, so that the, the king of the universe, he is not met with the shouts of his people in a place that is suitable for a king. He doesn't burst forth from the clouds with his sword at the ready. He doesn't come robed in any obvious power or any obvious strength. But instead, instead he comes through the ordinary means of childbirth to to ordinary parents in a not so ordinary place, in a place that none of us would even care to have visited. Jesus, from the very beginning, he takes the lowest place. J.C. Robb, he says this, We see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder but to become poor, the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest. This, this is something that, that passes, passes knowledge. It is unspeakable. It is unsearchable. Friends, Jesus, he loved us so much. You see it there at the top of your bulletin in Philippians 2. He loved us so much that though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And here it is. He took the form of a servant, a slave is what that word is, being born in the likeness of men. We're going to sing in just a minute this hymn by Luther. And you know this hymn well, all praise to the eternal Lord. I just want you to listen to to some of these lyrics. All praise to Thee, eternal Lord, clothed in a garb of flesh and blood, choosing a manger for Thy throne, while worlds on worlds are Thine alone. And then verse 3, 
A little child, thou art our guest, that weary ones in thee may rest. Forlorn and, forlorn and lowly is thy birth, that we may rise to heaven from earth. Friends, Jesus chose poverty. Jesus chose obscurity. There in Bethlehem, a place of no regard, a place that if we were there, none of us probably would have cared to visit in a place that none of us would have cared to visit. The Savior comes so that we may rise to heaven from earth. Do you believe that that is true? Is your soul resting in this story of Christmas in a child in a manger who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He redeemed you through that process. He redeemed the normal things of life so that we might find purpose, so that we might have real meaning. Are you resting in this truth today? Well, we've seen an extraordinary birth. Secondly, I want you to see an extraordinary announcement. An extraordinary announcement. You see it there in verses 8 through 14. Though though things are relatively quiet there in Bethlehem, uh, news like this, a birth of this magnitude, it couldn't go unnoticed for very long, could it? And so God, He gathers his, His angels, He gathers the heavenly host, and He sends them out to declare the birth of the King. Now, that, that part of the story should be the least surprising part of this story to us, right? Now, obviously, the world is going to reject this. They're going to say, oh, that didn't happen. The angels. But for us who believe, for us who trust in Christ, this should be the least surprising thing we face in this story. Because if the king really, if Jesus really is entering the world, then we would expect nothing less than angels and hosts, the whole nine yards to, to bring him in, right? And so angels, they, they, they sing. But the surprising part is not the messenger. The surprising part is who they go to sing to. You see it there in verse 8. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds. And we have kind of romanticized shepherds in our modern culture because we, we know that the, the patriarchs were shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. David obviously was a shepherd. And Jesus, he declares himself the good shepherd. And so we have this kind of idealized picture of what shepherds were. The reality is something far different. In this culture, shepherds were, were the lowest, right? Not only were they seen as liars and thieves, But because of the nature of their job, they were usually considered unclean religiously and also physically. You know, you can only spend so much time out in a field with a sheep before you begin to smell like a sheep. And so they were unclean. People didn't want to be around shepherds. One commentator goes so far as to say that apart from lepers, lepers that were ostracized, that were sent out, right? Apart from them... Shepherds were the lowest class of men in all of Israel. The question is, why would God choose them? Why would God go to somebody who is so unworthy of it? Surely there was somebody more dignified that he could have spoken these words to. 
Surely there was somebody more well-respected that could spread the news that people would believe because they were powerful, because they, they were trustworthy. Why shepherds? Here again, God, He upends our expectations, doesn't He? We want Him to go to the righteous, even knowing what we know. We want Him to go to, to the quote-unquote good people. The one who could do the most good for the kingdom. But what have we said all along? We said that, that Jesus, He has an affinity for, for stinky, smellable, smell, smelly, unreliable people, right? That Jesus came to save not, not the righteous, but He came to save the sinner. That He came to bring light to those who live in darkness. That He came to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. What better place to start than on a hillside with a bunch of shepherds, with a bunch of outcasts, with a bunch of people we never would have expected. That never could have earned it, that didn't deserve it, that nobody even liked. What a better place to begin the good news than there. Isn't that a joy? Isn't that a wonder to know the kind of people that Jesus loves are the messy kind of people? Because if we're honest with ourselves, that includes every single one of us. We are all not any better, not any more worthy than these shepherds out on that hillside. Reality is, is that Jesus comes to each one of us. He loves us, that, that He gives us this grace, this mercy. He brings us good news of great joy. It's not just for our families, though it is for our families. It's not just for the people we like, though it is for those people. It's not just for the people who are like us, who look like us, who act like us. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for Presbyterians. No, this is for all who would believe, all who are ready to acknowledge their sin, all who are ready to acknowledge their complete inability to save themselves. All who are ready to say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. To come empty handed. Is God, is he working that in your heart? Are you ready to acknowledge those things today? If so, if so, I want you to notice what he brings there in verse 14. And we saw this last week, so we won't leave it there we won't stay here very long, but there in verse 14, you remember the angel's message. As the multitude comes, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Again, this, this isn't just some kind of inner tranquil peace, some kind of Zen thing that we find. That this, isn't, this doesn't guarantee us peace in the world, not peace with our families necessarily. What this does guarantee us is peace with God, eternal peace with God, a peace that, that we can never find ourselves. We can never produce ourselves. This is an everlasting peace. Friends, this this is good news. This should produce in us a great joy. If it does that for you today, then I want to encourage you to do what we find that the shepherds do here at the end of our story. We've seen an extraordinary birth. We've seen an extraordinary announcement. 
And then thirdly and finally, I want you to see an extraordinarily proper response, an extraordinarily proper response. You see it in 15 through 20. The the angels, they they give their message. They ascend back up into heaven. And what do the shepherds do? They don't say, well, you know, that's pretty neat. I'll just think about this for a little while. They don't say, hey, let me let me go find somebody to keep my sheep. And then we'll go. We'll go see about these things. Right. No. It says there in verse 15 that when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They pack up their things and they go with haste. They go to find Mary and Joseph and this baby lying in a manger, just as the angel had said. That's Paul's right there. If the Lord is working in your heart, this is the proper response. Don't say, well, I'll I'll think about it tomorrow. Don't say, well, I'll wait till later on. No, the proper response is to pack up your stuff and go find Jesus. Go now. Don't leave. Go look for Jesus. Go. He he is there. He says, whosoever will may come. Now, clearly, as the the shepherds, as they get there and they, they... give them the knowledge that the angels have spoken to them. They, they tell these, these characters what they have seen, Mary and Joseph. You see that, that it is it's a shock to, to everyone there, right? Look at verse 18. It says, And all who heard it, they, they wondered at what the shepherds told them. And I'm, I'm particularly drawn to, to what Mary does here. Because I find myself in Mary as she, she hears all of this. Everybody else wonders at it. But Mary, she, she treasures up all these things. She ponders them in her heart. And we've already said that, that Mary is somebody who, who is living by faith already. But, but even now, as God unfolds this to her, as He announces once again, as He confirms what He's doing, she, she can't help but, but wonder at it and ponder all of these things in her heart. Friends, isn't, isn't that the way? If you've been a Christian for very long, isn't that the way that, that God works? No matter how many times we've heard the truth of the gospel, seems like about the thousandth time, it becomes even more precious to us, right? The more we hear the good news, the closer we get to Christ, the better and more wonderful and more majestic it gets to know that these things are true. To know that He truly loves us. Friends, that only gets better. Mary, she experiences that here. She experiences the wonder of it and she hides it in her heart. Are you holding these things with you? Are you pondering them in your life? Well, the shepherds, they, they picked up on it pretty fast. You know, having a, a heavenly multitude scare the spit out of you in the middle of a field. It'll do that to you. And so they return as the first missionaries, as the first evangelist of the Christian faith. You see that there in in verse 20. It says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. Now, a good story is like that, right? Renee, she she loves stories. My wife, she loves stories. And she, uh, whether it's Netflix, whether it's movies, whether it's books, she loves it. But you have to be careful with her because if she really, really likes it, if she ever pins you down, she'll tell you the whole thing before you have an opportunity to like read it for yourself or to go watch it yourself. She will tell you the whole story. 
And so you have to be careful. But it's just like she can't help it. It's like the story is so good. It's, it's, it's right there on her lips. She just has to tell you the whole thing. Well, friends, how much more wonderful is this? How much more should this cause us to go out into the world doing what the angels do, glorifying God, what the shepherds do, praising Him to anybody who will listen, to our families, to our children, to our co-workers, to anybody who cares to know what God has done for us. It should burst forth from our hearts. Because this, this is the greatest news that has ever been told. The story of Christmas, the story of redemption, if we have truly experienced it, then how can we not leave this place shouting it from the rooftops, man, going out and declaring it as far and as wide as we possibly can to all who have not heard, even to those who have heard, reminding them of the truth of the gospel. And it's my prayer for us this, this Christmas season that we would be reminded of how good this really is. That this really is good news. And it is great joy. And that God would fill us with the wonder of it all. And that He would send us out to glorify, adore, and love our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we do bow before You, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, as we consider what You have done for us, taking the lowest place, coming not in a king or a mansion, but coming there in a manger, in a place that is unworthy of most anyone, certainly unworthy of a king, unworthy of the Creator. Lord, what a joy it is to know that You loved us with that kind of love, that You would do whatever it took to redeem us, whatever it took to get near us, Father, I pray that 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 truth would would work in our hearts, that we would see ourselves for the reality of what we are, sinners who have sinned against a holy and righteous God, those who, like those shepherds, are, are without hope. But Lord, as we see You, Lord, that we would put our hope, our faith, all that we are, we would rest it in Jesus and know that You have done all that needs to be done to give us salvation. And Lord, then we would go out like those shepherds and that we would glorify you, we would praise you with our lives so that others would see Jesus and that they would come to know that great truth. Lord, speak speak the, the, the truth of this Christmas story to our hearts this year, maybe more than ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.